Preparing Europa Clipper for its voyage to Jupiter's ocean moon. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Designing, reviewing, redesigning, building, integrating, and testing at every step along the way. Creating a spacecraft is not work for the timid or anyone lacking patience. And then there's living in a state of healthy paranoia. That's what Mission System Manager Al Kangawala calls it. And that's to say nothing of doing all this during one of the least healthy times in a hundred years. And yet, Europa Clipper is making steady progress toward the beginning of its mission to that world with a hidden water ocean. The one that scientists and science fiction writers like the late Arthur C. Clarke have long suspected might be a likely place to find life. We'll get a great update from Al in a few minutes. I hope you're hearing this before Saturday, August 28th. That's when Sailing the Light, the Planetary Society's documentary about our light sail project, will premiere on YouTube. We'll watch the film together, and then I'll welcome Society leaders Bill Nye, Bruce Betts, and Jennifer Vaughn for a conversation that will include your questions. It starts at 1 p.m. Eastern, 1700 UTC, on Saturday the 28th. There's a direct link on our homepage, planetary.org. And don't worry if you've missed the live celebration. We'll make it available on demand. We're also coming up on the 2021 Humans to Mars Summit from Explore Mars. I've learned that I'll once again moderate the closing session with a bunch of Mars All-Stars answering a simple question, Why Mars? You can register for this free gathering at exploremars.org. We've also got the link on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio. H2M will run September 13 through 15. Wait till you see the amazing lineup of speakers and panelists, including NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Is it an impact crater? A volcano? No, it's the first hole drilled by Perseverance in Jezero Crater on Mars, but the image that tops the August 20 edition of the Down Lake sure looks bigger. We're waiting for the rover to make another attempt to collect a sample for an eventual return to Earth. It's almost certain that the Japanese Space Agency's Martian Moons Exploration Mission will bring back a sample from Phobos years earlier. A new study says ancient asteroids could have blasted life from the surface of the red planet to its moon. And you've probably heard that development of NASA's human landing system is once again on hold. Blue Origin has filed a suit against NASA because of the agency's award of only one contract to competitor SpaceX. So you can forget about boots back on the moon by 2024. Then again, that was never going to happen so soon. These stories and more great stuff are at planetary.org slash downlink. Loreano Alberto Congawala is simply Al to almost everyone. Al has one of those minds that guides spacecraft across the solar system and then through the complicated trajectories that enable them to gather wonderful science. He managed the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab's Mission Design and Navigation section prior to becoming part of the Europa Clipper team. He was a NASA astronaut selection finalist in 2000 and currently serves on the Astrodynamics Committee of the International Astronautical Federation. 
He didn't stop with B.S., M.S., and Ph.D. degrees in aeronautics, astronautics, but also earned a B.S. in Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Science from MIT. If you stay through the end of our conversation recorded just hours before we published this week's show, you'll understand why he loves making presentations to high school and college audiences about our exploration of the solar system. You'll also hear me mention Al's colleague and past planetary radio guest, Bob Popolardo. Bob is project scientist for Europa Clipper at JPL. Al, thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio, and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We have talked with Europa Clipper project scientist Bob Papalardo and, and other members of the science team on the mission, but not that often with other colleagues like you who are helping to design all of this. So it's a pleasure to do this, especially as we see uh, in a, a fairly recent press release from JPL that the spacecraft is coming together pretty well. Uh, do you feel good about the progress? We're very excited. This is this is a very exciting time uh, to think that we are doing our work and seeing the hardware come together and our plans for bringing this hardware to remote places of the solar system to do these uh, unique investigations is really a, been a shot in the arm. I'm going to get more deeply into the status of the spacecraft and, and the mission overall. Uh, but uh, just a couple of words about what you do first. I noted that you've been at JPL for nearly 30 years in a variety of jobs. And I want to tell you that I, I very much enjoyed, I didn't get to watch all of it, but I think I watched two of the five portions of a course that you teach, Deep Space Navigation, which I guess is a specialty of yours. Yeah, that was my technical background coming to JPL. Navigation, determining the trajectories of the spacecraft headed towards and at remote destinations in the solar system, being able to know where to point the, the ground antennas at Earth towards the spacecraft to send commands and receive data. Yeah, it's been very exciting because uh, this type of work gives you the opportunity to learn about the science of many different missions, those around the Earth, between the Earth and the Moon, and beyond. And we have noted that you have worked on a lot of missions in your, your tenure there at uh, JPL. I also saw that your PhD is in space geodesy. What is that? That's correct. Uh, geodesy is a, is a branch or a multidisciplinary aspect of science having to do with reconciling all these different attributes of the Earth. Its shape, how the shape changes, its rotation dynamics, it's, it's measuring physical attributes of the Earth and how they, how they change and how they're influenced by the presence of the moon, the sun, and other bodies. In order to navigate spacecraft, you have to kind of know how the Earth is navigating, so to speak, around the sun. And so in the research I did earlier, we were developing systems to monitor uh, deformations of the Earth's crust using signals uh, between Earth stations and Earth-orbiting satellites. Knowing the spacecraft's orbit was important, but not as important as knowing the changes of the locations of the stations due to geological activity. Now we've turned it around. We know pretty much where the Earth stations are. Now we want to know where the spacecraft is. So it's been interesting to kind of reverse the problem as my career has continued. That is a fascinating progression. Your title on the mission is Mission System Manager. What does that work include? The mission system is the ensemble of the things that are needed to properly operate the spacecraft and its instruments 
at, at its remote destination. One big aspect of this mission is the trajectory. We don't just fly to Europa and land. We're going to fly by Europa many times. Each flyby is kind of tailored to achieve some of the science as part of the total science uh, goals of the mission. So each flyby gives us an opportunity to come close to Europa, but each flyby changes the trajectory of the spacecraft significantly. One interesting piece of trivia is that we bring a lot of propellant with us to accomplish this mission, but the change in velocity of the spacecraft uh, that can be accomplished with that propellant is about 5% of the total trajectory change that you need. The rest of it we get from flying by uh, Europa and in this case, the Earth and, and Mars as well. So to us, Europa is not just the science destination, it's also a, a sort of propellant depot as well. One big aspect of the mission system work is the design of the trajectories and, and navigating to that trajectory. Then there's the mission operations. There's the determination of how we're going to operate the spacecraft. What cadence are we going to be uplinking commands? How will we respond to anomalies and so forth? And then there's the ground data system, which is needed to support all, all these activities. One other aspect of which I should also add is the mission planning. Um, in addition to having the the trajectory, it's kind of like you're having the blank slate set up there. Now you need to put in the activities that you normally would expect to perform to, to accomplish the science. And that includes direct observations of Europa, as well as other calibration activities to support the operation of the instruments and the spacecraft subsystems. I have several other questions to ask you about how this spacecraft will get its job done once it is in orbit around Jupiter. We, we, that's something else we might come back to. Really, even though it's a Europa mission, it's gonna, I know it's going to be orbiting Jupiter, much like Juno is uh, as we speak. But uh, I'll come back to that. You've also touched on a topic which, personally, the audience knows I like to bring up frequently because it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And that is the field of, of systems engineering, which seems to be so critical to the success of, of a mission like this, but of, of so many types of projects. Yes. I think to accomplish these missions, you need engineering in depth and breadth. And I think system engineering is a very important component of that. A change in one domain area could lead to changes in another domain area that aren't easily anticipated or modeled. So having uh, a good cadre of system engineers uh, is really essential to making this all happen. In addition to looking at those changes where one thing happens here, another thing happens here, we also want to measure risk and robustness. And measuring that across different domain areas can be a challenge to quantify what it means to be safe in terms of energy and power for the spacecraft versus uh, thermal considerations, versus navigation considerations. These are different areas of risk that have to be kind of weighed against each other properly in order to make good engineering decisions with, with design and how to operate the spacecraft. We have a great system engineering team to help, to help us do that. So many different factors to weigh. And as, as you just said, you know, changing one thing even slightly over here may have unexpected consequences for a system over there. Man, my hat's off to all, all of you who have to deal with this kind of stuff. Although it does seem 
that JPL and others have gotten pretty good at this in the last few decades. Yeah, I think I think the cumulative experience of the of the partner institutions brought to bear on this is a is a great asset. And experience includes times when things have not gone well and what we have learned from them. Uh, lessons learned can come in many forms, like you know formal reports or just uh, anecdotes. You know, just talking uh, with team members. And it's important, I think, to cultivate a a healthy level of paranoia about what what could go wrong and to try to quantify it and see what can be done to mitigate what we perceive to be genuine uh, risks. So risk management is very important. Managing the uncertainty is an important part of the job. Not the first time we've heard reference to that healthy sense of paranoia. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, but, uh, but I think we get it. Um, let's go back to talking about the status of the spacecraft. Uh, there are so many components of this spacecraft coming from so many different facilities, sometimes leaving one for another and then going back again. I'm, I, I mean, that has to be a challenge in itself. How does the project keep track of everything that has to come together? Well, managing schedule and schedule margin is an important part of the job. We do our best to kind of allocate times and milestones to accomplish the shuttling of the components needed to create the larger, you know, the subsystems and, and modules resulting ultimately in the full assembly of the spacecraft along with the instruments. From my first days on this project, the creation of the schedule and the management of the margin against that schedule has been a very important part of our work and something we track day in, day out and, and month to month. I think that's gone really well. And we've had a, a great team of people with which to do that. Among those components of the spacecraft are those nine instruments, which is you know quite a complement of instruments that the spacecraft is going to carry. Uh, there are some great photos of those available as well that we'll uh, try and uh, make available or at least give access to from uh, that article about the current status of, uh, of the mission. Uh, how are those uh, coming together? Because I know those are coming from all over as well. Yes, it's an interesting suite of instruments. Uh, some of them are builds that are based on designs that are already flying in other parts of the solar system. So we get to leverage from some of that, from the experiences uh, building and operating those earlier versions of the instruments. So that's that's been a, a benefit. With regards to the instruments and, and the spacecraft subsystems, COVID has been a challenge. And tracking, as part of tracking schedule and schedule margin, understanding where there may be pinch points because of COVID issues, whether it's at the institutions or suppliers, uh, is something the project has really taken to heart and, and tried to, to measure and understand. I would also say that safety is, is a very important part of this too. In managing the schedule, safety has, has been a top priority. And I'm really proud of our project management for making it clear that the health and safety of the team, including all the contributors, you know, going out to the subcontractors and so forth, is the top priority. It's great to know that we have the backing of our leadership while we go through these really unprecedented times. Are you one of those who has had to do a lot of this work out of your home uh, rather than at the lab where you could directly uh, interact with people face-to-face? -face? Uh, that's correct, yes. Much of the mission system work at this point, the development, continuing refinement of the trajectories, the maturation of the mission operations, processes, procedures, the development of the ground data system software. Much of that work has, has essentially, or I should say a vast majority of it, has proceeded off lab in at homes around Southern California, in other states. 
um, yeah, we've, we have made good progress under these, I, I'll say again, unprecedented circumstances. Let's hope unprecedented and also not repeated anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, if I were to uh, look down from that observation uh, bay over the, uh, the high bay, that, that historic clean room at, uh, at JPL, would I start to see the spacecraft coming together there or is that still uh, in the future? That that's still in the future, but you will you, in other uh, clean room areas at at JPL, at APL, and and Goddard, you would see activity these days. APL, of course, the uh, Applied uh, Physics Lab in Maryland, uh, Johns Hopkins University, of course, which is a, a major contributor, and of course the uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, another NASA center like JPL. <sighs> Looking at artists' renderings of the spacecraft, I don't know if people, I know I didn't get an idea of just how big it is, just the propulsion module. Yeah, about 10 feet high, yeah. Yeah, this isn't a CubeSat. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that is one of the reasons why, uh, looking at how you're going to begin its journey out there to the Jovian system has been so important. For a while there, of course, Congress had required that uh, the launch take place on that big uh, space launch system rocket uh, that is still in development. But uh, recently, we got the word that no, uh, Europa Clipper is going to be up in the Falcon Heavy. I just wonder if that, how much of a difference that makes uh, for the mission uh, and making sure that you get out there to Europa as soon as possible. You know, when we design these missions, when we reach the preliminary design, we call it preliminary design review or PDR, our challenge there is to explain, you know, the different possible ways we could do a job, the different options for for making a possible decision. And for going to Jupiter, you know, that's a pretty big trade. We had a design for the spacecraft and instruments that was uh, agnostic to a few different options to getting to Jupiter. We could go directly. We could use gravity assist in a, in a few combinations. And I think that was, that was part of our message. Fast forward a few years later, when you get the critical design review, the onus now is to explain what you will do. That required having a decision on that. So we continue to show that we were ready to go with whatever the choice was going to be. And shortly after our review, we, we were starting to get that direction. And so it's, we're in a good place now that that announcement has been made that we're going on a mega trajectory with this particular launch vehicle. So it's all come together. And we're, we're happy to see that, that crystallize now. That's great to hear. And uh, I hope that you guys can take some uh, comfort in the fact that uh, Falcon Heavies have been done pretty well so far. I, we had our own light sail too on one. And uh, it uh, performed just fine for That's us right, and yeah. all those other payloads. I talked with Scott Bolton, the uh, principal investigator for the Juno mission now and then, and he has talked about the contacts that are maintained between his team and yours. And your mission profile does seem, as I said, to, to have a lot in common with the, the Juno mission that is orbiting Jupiter. I, I, have you had personal contact with with folks on the Juno side? And, and have you seen some of the benefits of being able to talk to them? And not just about trajectory, but, but about things like surviving that terrible radiation out there near Jupiter. Yeah, absolutely. Our, we have many team members who have uh, served on Juno uh, in the hmm. past. Earlier in my career in uh, a role in line management, I supported Juno. So it's very exciting to watch them 
uh, transition into their extended mission, where they'll be performing flybys of the Galilean moons, in, including Europa. Uh, so we're very excited to, you know, hear about their science from these from these uh, ongoing flybys. Yes, and then during their prime mission, we were we did keep in touch on how the spacecraft was doing. Its orbit is inclined with respect to the Jupiter orbit plane. So it's a little different from the Clipper orbit, but nonetheless, you're in the Jupiter environment and you're going to learn things. And so we've we've been in communication about their findings. But I have to say, yeah, we're you know going back the last couple of months and looking a year ahead, these upcoming flybys are uh, very much on our minds. Has to be reassuring to see that Juno has, if anything, survived that uh, that horrible radiation environment better than a lot of people expected. Yeah, it, the spacecraft has done great, and uh, we're very, very happy for them and uh, appreciate the opportunity to learn from their experiences. Al Kangawala will share much more with us in a minute here on Planetary Radio. Hi again, everyone. It's Bruce. Many of you know that I'm the program manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail program. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. It will soon be featured in the Smithsonian's new Futures exhibition. Your support made this happen. LightSail still has much to teach us. Will you help us sail on into our extended mission? Your gift will sustain daily operations and help us inform future solar sailing missions like NASA's NEA Scout. When you give today, your contribution will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Plus, when you give $100 or more, we will send you the official LightSail 2 Extended Mission Patch to Wear with Pride. Make your contribution to science and history at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sail on. Thanks. We mentioned that Juno and the Europa Clipper as well are going to be orbiting Jupiter. Now, in the case of Clipper, why not just orbit Europa? Europa has been a a destination of uh, high interest for, for decades, and many different mission architectures have been proposed for studying Europa, including that of a dedicated orbiter. One of the challenges is dealing with the fact that Europa is orbiting in this high radiation environment uh, due to the strong magnetic field of Jupiter and the high energy particles trapped in it. If you're orbiting Europa, you're in the midst of that high radiation environment. And so your time is limited unless you brought more and more shielding. And if we were going to expend mass on the spacecraft design, we would rather put that mass into instruments, <laughs> uh, scientific instrument, and that would be preferable to more shielding. Teams that have studied these types of missions in the past have struggled with it, and one idea that came out uh, was to just dip in, do do your science during a, a period of, like, let's say, a day or so around closest approach to Europa, then leave the high radiation environment and downlink data at a more, let's say, more relaxed cadence, and then repeat. After uh, a few dozen flybys, you could start to accrue uh, the coverage that you would have achieved through a dedicated orbiter anyway. So we, mm. we feel like we're getting the best of both worlds. No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a moment. How do you describe, I mean, is it a particularly complex orbital trajectory that, that the Clipper will follow? Or I, I, is it maybe simpler than the, the one that Juno is doing at that uh, incline to uh, the uh, the ecliptic. At a high level, if you step back and you, you would look at the uh, diagram of the 
Europa Clipper orbit around Jupiter, and its closest approach to Jupiter, it's really, that's about the time when you would be encountering Europa. That orbit is sized so that its encounters with Europa are kind of in resonance with the Europa orbit. So Europa orbits Jupiter once every three and a half, four, 3.55 days. We would look at orbits that would have a four to one or six to one resonance with Europa's orbit. So we would meet Jupiter, I'm sorry, we would meet Europa once every uh, 14.2 or 21 point, let me get my math right, 14.2 <laughs> uh, <laughs> or 21.3 days, roughly every two to three weeks. So at a high level, we're just talking about exploiting a resonance between the orbits. The listeners could just pick, you know, picture every two or three weeks, we, we meet Europa. Now, if you kind of zoom in on the orbits uh, and these encounters, and you look at the ground track, the angle at which we approach Europa does set up a change in the orbit of Europa Clipper, which sets up the ground track of the next flyby. So mm. You could think of uh, flybys being organized like six or seven at a time to achieve coverage so that from north to south, each flyby is, is getting uh, some new, covering some new territory. Those sequences or uh, sets of flybys are referred to as crank over the top sequences or COTS. Designing a COT as a unit uh, to achieve a certain level of coverage of a hemisphere is uh, kind of the currency w that we're talking about. We, we will mm. use a cot to cover the anti-Jovian hemisphere, then another cot to go over the same place, but going south to north. And so in doing adding cots together, you can really achieve really strong global regional coverage of a hemisphere of Europa. And so we'll do that first for the anti-Jovian hemisphere, and then we'll rotate the orbit around and repeat doing flybys of the sub-Jovian hemisphere in a, in a similar fashion. This may be a bit of a stretch, but I used to tell people that to me, a flyby is like a transistor uh, in a hardware sense. Uh, if you think of it that way, then a caught sequence is like a integrated circuit. Every, <laughs> every transistor in there is in there for with a specific purpose. So this is how I explain it to hardware people. <laughs> but the, the caught sequence is really architecting multiple flybys to achieve something greater than you could achieve with a with a single flyby. So let me continue with your metaphor for a moment and and think that maybe the comparison to a transistor you're saying that tiny adjustments to the trajectory can have a much larger effect the way a tiny change in in current to a transistor can you know control something much bigger. Something like that. I think the strength is, yeah, the integration is what gives you the strength. Yeah, okay. Um, most listeners are familiar with the concept of, of the benefits of a single flyby, but orchestrating them together to to rotate the orbit or, or you know, make adjustments to the orbit to reach new, new parts of the European surface, it's a great um, application of astrodynamics. So let's say that Clipper, on one of its passes find some particularly interesting feature on the surface of this moon. A plume, let's say, we should be so lucky. You got to know that Bob Pappalardo and the rest of the science team are going to be pounding on your door and saying, how soon can we get back to that? So how soon would you be able to get back to a feature like that? That's a great question. Um, and that's, that's really at the heart of the mission operations design is 
working with science to understand what can we respond to quickly, what really deserves more time to respond to. If a particular instrument encounters something interesting, like they detect a new species uh, on a particular flyby and want to re-optimize their sensors, the operation of their sensors to be more receptive to particular species, we can do that. We can support that uh, with relatively little effort. I mean, our baseline design really accommodates that. Some of our instruments have gimbals, like our mm. narrow angle camera. What we can do is also support updating the uh, mosaic of images that are going to be generated from flyby to flyby. We have some ability to readjust them, that mosaic to respond to findings from images that have been downlinked along the way. It won't, it won't be instantaneous, but we do intend to allow for re-optimizing those, those profiles. Moving the trajectory is probably the one one of the items that requires the longest lead time, and we've worked with science to socialize that and, and, and show you know <laughs> making a change here means losing something that you might have already uh, pre-planned and accounted for. So we certainly have studied astrodynamics mechanisms to help us cover new things, but I think studying it and having a well instrumented in the case of a, a plume, having a well instrumented dedicated plume flyby is something that require more more lead time to to plan and, and work out with science. So to me, responding to findings is part of our job. There's a spectrum of response time constants, and the, the plume scenario is probably one of the ones with the longest time constants. I like how you put that, socializing the science team. That, that's, that's a nice way to put it. There was another word you used, which we should clarify. When you mentioned species, I suspect you were talking about chemical species, not necessarily a biological species, a living thing. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're referring to uh, elements and compounds. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. Uh, are we on track for a launch in not very long, 2024? Yes, we we're doing very well. Uh, again, it is under ch- uh, challenging circumstances, but. Uh, we're just really proud of how everyone has been pulling together to get this done. Yes, yeah, so we're we're on track for a launch in October of 2024 on a Mars-Earth gravity assist trajectory to Jupiter. And we'll arrive in a Jupiter system in April of 2030. 2030. All right. I'm not going to think right now about how old I'll be by then. <laughs> I cannot wait. And there are a lot of us out here who... Uh, are saying Godspeed to uh, Europa Clipper and you and the entire team. Before I let you go, I, I want to ask uh, how you ended up in this line of work. I've always been interested in exploring the solar system. I got hooked by watching the Voyager launches uh, as a kid. And in the back of my mind, I thought, well, wherever they do that, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to find out more about that. And then I had the benefit of going to a, a science summer school. It was a uh, hosted by the state of Pennsylvania Hmm. uh, as a junior in high school. And there I learned about how to really propagate trajectories uh, using software. And we looked at uh, propagating the trajectory of Skylab. Uh, Once I learned how how it really works to to develop, model, and and design trajectories and navigate to them, I I was hooked. It was just just something I, I wanted to do ever since then. Just one more thing. I found a great quote from you on NASA's 
Solar System Exploration Facebook page. We'll link to this as well. You talked about a message that you once received from your grandfather in Colombia. Do you remember this? Yes, yes. Um, it was really a, a letter to me when I was just a, a, a baby. And um, I guess I had written a, a card to him for Father's Day. And he he took the moment to write back and just uh, say that he was, you know, uh, just really supportive of me and really wanted to make sure that, I mean, to him, his his daughter, my, my mom, came to the United States to teach Spanish in, in the U.S. high schools and didn't know if she was going to come back um, and was just sending a letter, letter in support to her and, and to me, hoping that I would uh, listen to my parents and follow in their footsteps to try to be a, a good citizen of wherever I was. And to be helpful to wherever you were going to be. In this case, my adoptive country. And so, yeah, I've always I've always treasured that letter. Uh, this is a very everyone's grandparents are special, but I feel like to have such um, vision as to how one a, a child's life was going to evolve, having never really left the country, his his native country, um, says a lot to me, and uh, I've never forgotten that. I, I hope to live up to uh, his expectations and uh, really help make this, this kind of work something that is really inspiring to, to the younger people in particular. Because when we talk about years like 2030, you have to think that you know, the people who are going to operate this mission uh, as we go around uh, Jupiter and fly by Europa, those people are in college and high school right now. So we need to reach out and, and inspire them. And I feel like the way my grandfather inspired me is, is a model that I would like to emulate. I hope some of those young people who are the future scientists and engineers that will be uh, revealing Europa to us with Europa Clipper are listening to us right now. Uh, I think you uh, gave plenty of, have given plenty of reason for, uh, for pride, Al. A job well done. Thank you so much for uh, giving us this status report on Europa Clipper and for sharing that, uh, that great uh, experience, that great uh, letter that uh, your grandfather sent you uh, years ago. Best of uh, continued success to you and the rest of the Europa Clipper team. Thank you very much. Great speaking with you. Time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here he is, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, planetary scientist, astronomer, all-around great guy, Bruce Betts. Welcome. Oh, thanks, man. Oh, you, you really do need a vacation. <laughs> oh, maybe I'll take one. Remember, that's why we're recording early this time. Right. <laughs> you needed a reminder. Here's a good start for that vacation. Wired Magazine now, you know, their last page, they, they do this thing called Six Word Sci-Fi, and they give you a prompt, and then they let people write in, submit their six-word sci-fi stories based on that prompt. Here's the one from the new issue. The prompt is, write a story about a casual encounter with aliens. Here's the winner. It's not my favorite. And it has three aliens sitting in a call center. You know, they have headset mics and the whole bit. That's not the funny part, but it's okay. No, it's not it's bad. Not. Why not? It's a secondary Is it the funny, funny part. part that we're talking about the a casual encounter with aliens? I, I find that funny. Seems unlikely. Go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. So here's the response that won from uh, at phone 96 on Twitter. So 
about your planet's extended warranty, (laughs) which is is pretty good, you know, coming from a call center guy. Then here's my favorite. Remember, casual encounters with aliens. This from a John Wagner, quite unexpectedly, cocktail recipes were exchanged. (laughs) (laughs) That is unexpected. Definitely. Tell us about the night sky. I bet you were you were expecting it would be great. I think I think it will be great. There are planets and they're bright. And you can see the brightest planet, you know, besides Earth. Uh, over on the western horizon, early in the evening, Venus, low down but looking super bright. Turn your view to the other horizon over in the east, and you've got Jupiter and Saturn rising. Jupiter very bright, Saturn looking yellowish to its upper right check them out. I need a vacation. You're counting down, aren't you? It's not really a vacation. I mean, it's only kind of a vacation. I'm taking a son to college, so, and exploring hurricanes that shouldn't be there. On to this week in space history. By the way, tell him congratulations. I shall. Voyager 2 was busy two different times during this week in space history. It was flying by Saturn in 1981 and flying by Neptune. In 1989. Just as we were uh, told by Linda Spilker on last week's show, a double anniversary. Also, the anniversary of one of the launches. I can't remember which one, but uh, that that took place in 1977. And they're still going strong-ish. Yeah. On to (laughs) Random Space Fact! The orbital... I think you're going to like this one, Matt. The orbital speed of Mercury, how fast it's going around the sun compared to the orbital speed of Neptune, is about the same as the speed of a fast race car like Formula One or IndyCar, compared to the speed of a fast-running human. Race car to human, Mercury to Neptune. That's a great one. Thank you for that. You're right. I love it. Thought of that as I was falling asleep last night. And then I confirmed the numbers. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad you you did the fact check. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't just make it up. All right. On to the trivia contest. I asked you, what is the tallest mountain on Venus? How did we do, Matt? We got some great responses this week, including a couple of poems. I'm going to open with one of those. It's from Gene Lewin in Washington. Within the Maxwell Monte Massif stands the tallest of Venusian peaks, measured up from the planet's mean radius since there's no sea level there, so to speak. Discovered through use of radio waves, Arecibo provided the means... Confirmed a bit later by Pioneer 12 with a 1.7 gig radar beam. And though Venus, we know itself, is quite hot, you may want to wax up your skis. Because atop of old Scotty Moans, it's only 716 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds delightful and a relaxing vacation spot. Yeah, I'll say. That theme continued, as you'll hear in a moment. Here is our winner. A first-time winner. Congratulations to Milena Mandic, who is in Serbia. I think this may be our first winner from that nation. She said, Maxwell Montes Mountain Range. That's the mountain, basically. The highest peak is Scotty Moans, named after the Norse goddess of winter. And she adds, her birthday is in December. So this is destiny to listen for the first time to your podcast and for this to be the question. Sure, why not, Milena? If you if you say so, <laughs> we're we're happy to congratulate you and uh, glad to welcome you to the show as well. 
what a way to start. You have won yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you have won yourself a copy of Light in the Darkness, Black Holes, the Universe, and Us by astrophysicist Heino Falke, published by uh, Harper One, uh, a fascinating uh, book. Uh, and uh, we'll have the publisher send that your way. Excellent. Maxwell Montes also is one of my favorite answers to a trivia that I asked many, many, many moons ago, which is it's the only feature on Venus not named for a female character or actual person. Uh, that isn't quite true. Alpha and Beta Regio, but it's the only male named on Venus named for famous Maxwell uh, equations dude who did a bunch of great science. And we had several entrants who de- were delighted to uh, discover, because you had given them that hint, that that was uh, the uh, what you were looking for. The only feature on Venus named after a human male. We did get some other stuff who have some uh, interesting extreme sports in mind. Daniel Sorkin in New York. He said that uh, Scotty Moans rises to about 11 kilometers, seven miles above the planet's mean radius. Not in the same league as Olympus Mons on Mars, but still would be quite a climb. Uh, Torsten Zimmer in Germany. And this is legit. It's also featured in The Climber's Guide to the Galaxy a truly indispensable guide for every serious future mountain climber. <laughs> it's uh, at explorersweb.com, but we'll put up the direct link uh, on this week's uh, show page. And, wow. and it does, it really is a, a very interesting, fun article that it's well done with a few peaks around the uh, solar system that have, are yet to be uh, conquered. <laughs> uh, finally, Chris Mills in Virginia uh, said that it seems to be covered in snow made of lead and bismuth sulfide. Perfect for making heavy metal snow angels. Yeah! <laughs> and we do close with uh, something from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild. Maxwell Matias is a mountain standing tall on Venus Plain, reaching almost seven miles in the altitude you'd gain, marked by basin Cleopatra. Quite an impact from above. Max and Cleo, what a combo. <laughs> on the planet named for love. Oh, <laughs> Isn't that sweet? That's adorable. What do you got for next time? Name every type of spacecraft that has carried humans into Earth orbit. <laughs> I don't mean every individual spacecraft, but every type. So, for example, space shuttle counts as one, one type. And go to planetary.org slash radio contest to find out how to enter. And this is Earth orbit or beyond. There are people out there slapping their foreheads right now, but then there are other people, I can see you, who are already digging deep in the Wikipedia. You have until... Or, or into your brain. It's, a, it's an interesting question. How many can you name without looking it up? Yeah. And then look it up and give us the right answers. You have until September 1st, Wednesday, September 1st at 8 a.m. to get us this answer. And uh, what the heck, we will award your chance to pick up another robotic spacecraft poster uh, from ChopShopStore.com, run by our friend Thomas Romer. Uh, a whole huge series of your favorite missions, robotic missions, and uh, soon to be in- including the third series of these uh, which, you know what, I don't have it in front of me, but I know it's Pioneer, Viking, and something else. Anyway, they're beautiful, and uh, we will give you your choice of those posters 
if uh, random.org picks you out and you come up with all those different human carrying spacecraft, I believe we are done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about lions. And tigers and bears, oh my. Uh, have a great time on that uh, little trip delivering your son to, uh, to his new uh, university. And uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Take care. That's Bruce Betts, Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week for What's Up? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its always exploring members. Become part of their mission of discovery at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.